If you have a Bible, go and open it to the book of Mark. To the book of Mark, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. So for the past few months, we've been going through the book of Mark. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, uh, I believe that should be page 710-ish, somewhere around there. And uh, if you're using a Bible for the first time, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be looking at verse verse 1 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And it says this. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell upon thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like the seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, Welcome it and produce fruit 30, 60, and a hundred times what was sown. Let's pray. Lord, we want to heed the words that, that we just heard, even from this parable. Help us not to be like uh, the, the seed on the path or on rocky soil or on thorny soil, but to be seeds in good soil. Help us to receive and welcome your word this morning. We can only do that by your spirit's help. So we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Has the universe ever told you 
that your sibling is better than you. I had an instance like that when I was eight. Uh, I was confronted with the fact that I did not know before, which was that I was colorblind. My sister and I were going to the optometrist to get new glasses, and they had one of those colorblind tests on the wall with, where you had different circles that were filled with different colored dots, and you would look and try to figure out what, what digit was inside. And except for me, it was like a cruel puzzle where everyone was in on the joke, and I couldn't decipher what I was looking at. I could see the first puzzle, because that's one that everyone should be able to get. I was able to dictate what, what digit was inside, but I couldn't see any of the other ones. And my sister saw my pain as a gleeful science experiment. She would point at a circle, ask me what it was, find out that I didn't know, and giggle with delight. She'd point, I'd fail. Every single inquiry was another clang on the gong of my own incompetence. See, the numbers were there in the circles. I just couldn't see them. I could look, but I couldn't perceive what was there. In this passage in Mark, we get to see Jesus deliberately teaching parables where people are hearing the words, but they can't understand, where, where they look, but they can't perceive the truth that's inside. And as we peer into this dotted circle of a parable together, we can learn an important warning and encouragement as we continue to listen to God's word together. So, so here's the main idea for us this morning, to welcome the word, to welcome the word. You, you see that with the good soil, that, that they're welcoming the word there in, in verse 20. And there are two points for us this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the seed, the seed of the word being planted. Number two, we're going to look at the soil. So number one, we're going to look at the seed. And number two, we're going to look at the soil. Let's start with number one, the seed. Look, look again at verse one. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd, was by the sea on the shore. As Jesus continues his ministry throughout the book of Mark, his influence is continuing to grow. And, and now this crowd is huge. In fact, it's the very first time in the book of Mark that you see that word very large or, or super being used. Because every single time Jesus appears at the Sea of Galilee and he gathers a crowd, the crowd gets bigger. Starts out with a crowd, then gets to a large crowd, and now it's a super crowd. Right? Uh, earlier, uh, when he was on the Sea of Galilee, he, he sees four disciples. He meets Andrew and Peter and James and John, and, and he calls them to follow him so that he can make them not, not just fishermen of fish, but, but fishermen of people. And now, back at that Sea of Galilee, Jesus' net has spread so wide to gather a school of people that are eager to hear Jesus' teaching. See, what, whatever you think of Jesus, you can't ignore him. When he speaks, people listen. The word begins to spread and it's continued to spread until now there is a literal multitude of people that are eager to hear what Jesus has to say. There's a reason why we're here today talking about Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you're here visiting today, I'd like to welcome you because you are also tangled in that net. It's a net that's worth being caught in. Because we believe 
that Jesus is the most significant man to have ever lived. And his words are worth your consideration and your time. This, this very large crowd gathers to see what the fuss is about with this Jesus guy. And as Jesus begins to teach, as he looks out to the multitude and he speaks, he begins to comment not on who he is, but on who they are. And you can see that in verse 2. Read with me. He, he taught them many things in parables in his teaching. He said to them, listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly uh, since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on the good ground. It grew up producing a fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Jesus tells a story about a sower that goes out to, to sow seeds. They're laid on a path, on, on rocky soil, and, and thorny soil, and then on good ground. And so the seed on the path gets taken, the, the ones on the stones shrivel, and the ones on, on the thorns get, get uh, choked out, and the ones on good soil flourishes. And then Jesus concludes his lesson. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Gets up, and he leaves. No explanation, no elaboration. You can imagine people in the crowd looking at each other with puzzled looks and just kind of shrugging at, at, at this mystery that Jesus just gave. And so when, when Jesus is alone, some of these people, along with the 12 disciples, come to Jesus to ask him what he meant by what he just said. And you can see his explanation there in verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. What is the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about? Well, we know that he's talking about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? The good news that Jesus opens with in the very beginning of this letter in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That, that seed according to verse 13, is the word of Jesus being spread. The, the secret of the kingdom of God being revealed that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That he came to fulfill his father's plan. And, and the secret of this kingdom of God is this news, this call to repent and believe. And, and the way that this seed gets spread, the way that this good news goes out, is by hearing the word of God. By hearing Jesus' teaching and is planted in the hearts of these people. Except, in this chapter, Jesus doesn't say the stuff that he said in Mark chapter 1. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't call anyone to repent and believe. Instead, he tells this parable about seeds and soil. And rather than calling those listening to repent and believe in him, like we believe the gospel teaches. Verse 12 says here that he deliberately 
spoke in parables so that they wouldn't turn back and be forgiven. Literally the opposite of the gospel call. That rather than repenting or turning away from their sin and trusting in Jesus, he deliberately masks what he teaches so that people wouldn't repent and that they wouldn't believe. Is Jesus being cruel? What kind of sadistic God would deliberately withhold forgiveness from other people? That's a difficult question and one that deserves a decent explanation. I don't have time to overview everything, but I'll just give you two points for now. Number one, human beings are not exempt from God's judgment. Human beings are not exempt from God's judgment. We, we know that to be true, that, that if God were truly good, all of us would expect him to administer justice impartially and objectively. That, that when we hear of atrocities that are being committed around the world, especially recently, we want to see the wicked get punished. And it's good that we feel that. When we hear stories about Hitler or of Jeffrey Epstein, you, you name whoever commits the greatest atrocities that you see in the world, we know in our hearts that the right thing to do, the good thing to do, is to punish those who have done wrong things. That's why we believe in a justice system. Because we think that it's right to administer punishment on those who have genuinely done wrong. The problem then isn't that God judges the wicked. It's that according to God's word, all of us fall into that category. All of us fall into that category. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue isn't that God's not good by withholding forgiveness. The issue is that we're not good and deserving of punishment. See, God has every right to withhold forgiveness from those that do not deserve it. I don't know if you've been watching the news recently, um, but there's this guy named Sam Bankman-Fried who was just convicted and sentenced to over 100 years in jail. Uh, He ran a Ponzi scheme that was masquerading as this cryptocurrency trading firm, and he had a work group chat that was literally titled, Wire Fraud. It took that jury less than three hours to come to a verdict and sentence for him. And that's a subjective human court. And it would take a heavenly court no time whatsoever to convict any of us. All of us have the word sinner attached to our case, and we deserve to lose. The scandal of the gospel isn't that God went out of his way to save innocent children, but that he forgave despicable criminals. That that the good news of the gospel isn't that God finally managed to live up to our expectations of what he should be doing for us. The good news of the gospel is that God shows extravagant forgiveness to those that do not deserve it by sending his son to live the perfect life that we can never live, by dying the death that we deserve to die. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he paid the sentence of condemned sinners like you and I. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we're here today. Not because we deserve something from the Lord, but because the Lord loved us and was gracious to us. Number two. Jesus 
doesn't arbitrarily choose to withhold secrets from this crowd. It wasn't just some random whim of his own emotions. There's a purpose behind it. If you look back down at your Bible at verse 12, um, you'll notice that verse 12 is structured a little differently. It might be bolded in your Bible or, or italicized. And that's because Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. Um, you, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard sermons from Isaiah 6. Isaiah has his vision of the Lord sitting on his throne in the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. There are pillars and smoke and, and angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy to one another as the pillars rumble and shake because of God's holiness. Right Then Isaiah falls on the ground and says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And God forgives him with this live coal. And then, and then God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And we've all heard sermons about that, about how we need to answer that call and go out and follow the Lord. What most people don't talk about is what God then tells Isaiah immediately after, which is what Jesus is quoting here in verse 12. God tells Isaiah that his ministry would be defined by blindness, hard-heartedness, and rejection. That God was going to send Isaiah to the people of Israel, not to cause repentance in them, not to cause a revival, not to change the hearts of Israel, but rather to reveal Israel's rejection of him. You see the same thing in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 3, where, where he calls Ezekiel to go and, and proclaim uh, his prophecies to, to the nation of Israel. He says, I'm not sending you to evil nations, because if I sent you to them, those evil nations would listen to you. But I'm sending you to the nation of Israel because they will not listen to you. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah have ministries that had the express purpose of not working. Where it would reveal just how hard-hearted Israel became. You know, two weeks ago we, we talked about how uh, the scribes of Jerusalem were, were saying that Jesus was following Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, and, and how when Jesus talks about this idea of the divided house that can't stand, he was actually making a comment on the nation of Israel, right? Uh, highlighting Israel's hard-heartedness. They're unable to see the treasure right in front of them. And here, Jesus is pointing it out again, that by teaching in parables, he is exposing just how hard-hearted Israel is, that they hear Jesus' words, they're able to understand the exact words that, that he's saying, but they're not able to comprehend his meaning. They can't perceive who Jesus is. And because of their blindness, they've sealed their fate. Israel is condemned as a result. What about you? You who are sitting here in the pews today, as you're listening to God's word, how are you going to respond to the seed that the Lord is spreading? Well, that depends on what type of soil you are. So that's point number one, the seed. Here's point number two, the soil. The soil. Jesus gives us images of four types of soil that he then explains to his disciples. And the first is on the path. You can see that there in verse 13. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. 
Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. The seeds on the path are immediately swooped up by Satan. We, we tend to think that us here in this room have more agency than we actually do. But the Bible is clear that we don't just live in a world where the natural world is all there is. It's not just up to our circumstances or our environment. We actually have an enemy, and his name is Satan. And the Bible commands us in, in verses like James 4, 7, that we are to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Some of us are more vigilant in killing mosquitoes in our living room than we are about Satan. He seeks to kill and destroy us. If we're not sober-minded, if we're not alert, equipped with the armor of God, and proactively guarding ourselves from his attacks, we may find our soil to have no seed at all. We need to resist Satan. Next, we see the warning from the rocky soil, from the rocky soil in verse 16. Others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or, or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. So unlike the seed that falls on the path that doesn't even get a chance to, to get into the dirt, this seed manages to get inside and sprout. In fact, at first, it looks like it's going to be a great plant. It shoots up quickly from the ground. But then when the sun of, of distress and persecution comes, it scorches the plant, and the plant withers away. It's easy to talk a big game when things are going really well. A couple that's two months into dating talks as though they figured everything out. A pastor starts his pastorate, and there's no conflict, no problems in the church, and he thinks, I should write a book about the ministry. A new believer is on fire sharing the gospel with every single person that he knows. And, and to be clear, we shouldn't fault ourselves for enjoying those types of beginnings. There's nothing wrong with using the momentum of starting something new to carry yourself uh, into developing new habits or, or new rhythms or, or, or new patterns for the future. The problem, though, with something that's new is that it becomes old. Honeymoons fade. Life erodes at your passions. External circumstances can be the last straw before everything falls apart. And when life gets hard, what matters isn't your visible fruit, but your invisible root. Your invisible root. This is why we at this church are disinterested in shallow faith. Faith that just optimizes your life or uses Jesus as an accessory, but doesn't offer you anything of real spiritual significance. Because faith that's dependent on anything other than a true understanding of the gospel isn't a faith at all. It can't withstand the heat of hardship. Don't be distracted by visible fruit if there's no evidence of deeper roots. The tallest house of cards can still tumble when the wind blows. Shallow faith leads to scorched falls. I wonder how deep your roots are. Not 
what you're doing to volunteer for the church. Not how curated your spiritual profile is when others look at you. But how deep is your faith? How deep is your obedience? Have you let the word plant itself deep into your heart? See, a sign of of true conversion is not just that you do stuff for Jesus, though that's certainly a part of it. A true sign of conversion is a faith that wants to plumb the depths, that wants to go deeper, that wants to understand what Jesus says, to understand his word, to understand what God has to say, and to grow deeper, not just higher. When you're anchor deep, when you're actually deep in the word, when you understand what Jesus is teaching, you're able to endure the flames of the trials around you. The preparation that you give to your faith now will help you when you're in fire tomorrow. Next, we see the thorny soil. The thorny soil, verse 18. Others are like seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus, for the last warning, transitions from external opposition to internal opposition. That the thorns represent the worries of his age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and other desires. That that word desires kind of hits at what Jesus is pointing at. That that in other words, the thorns in, in this imagery is representing the evil desires that come to tempt our hearts, our will, what we love. That the concerns of this world can start to dominate our thoughts. Can you really afford to live in the state of California? Am I advancing in my career? How do I make sure that I don't mess up my kids? How do I make sure that I find the right spouse? How do I provide for my retirement properly? How do I keep the earth from destroying itself? How do I keep humans from destroying themselves? And, and some of these questions aren't that bad to think about. They're worth your consideration. But when these thoughts begin to creep at your heart, when they start to creep into your desires, they evolve into worries. They start to slither around our affections, what we love, and begin to suffocate us. That's part of what makes wealth so deceptive. I rarely meet people who are obsessed with money for money's sake. It's not the dollar that that captures their imagination. It's, It's what they think the dollar can give you. It's the security of being able to provide for your family. It's the joy of enjoying life's delicacies. It's the hope of a brighter future. Money becomes a mirror of whatever our heart desires. Wealth promises us our wildest dreams. In other words, money helps us feel like God. For many Christians, it's an unnoticed, domesticated sin especially because we can use godly intentions to justify ungodly desires. Say that again. Christians can use godly intentions to justify ungodly desires. We want to provide for our family. The Bible says 
that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. But taking that good desire, we then permit greed into our hearts. We want to enjoy God's creation. God wants us to do that. He tells Adam and Eve to enjoy the fruit of the Garden of Eden. But then we use that to indulge in gluttony. We want to be responsible and prepare for the future. But then we find our ultimate security not in the Lord, but in our idols. And when we start to think that we can accomplish what we want with our own ability, when we get so caught up with trying to elevate ourselves that we forget who's actually above us, we are committing idolatry. Money and other idols promise control for us to be able to transform our lives into our own image. See, the thorns of idolatry here that you see in this parable, they don't kill you by penetration. They kill you by asphyxiation. It doesn't pierce. It doesn't wound. It doesn't stab. What it does is it chokes. The thorns grip into our flesh and slowly squeeze the life out of us. See, the the jewelry of wealth isn't a necklace. It's actually a noose. It chokes the life out of you. Don't fall into the trap of Ananias and Sapphira, who professed to follow the Lord and mixed godly intentions with selfish desires. The Spirit cannot cohabitate with sin. What we need isn't cohabitation. What we need is extermination. We need to completely uproot whatever idols may seek to grip our hearts so that we can remain in Christ alone. Lastly, Jesus talks about the good soil. And we'll close with this image here, verse 20. And those like seeds sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. The good soil is not like the path. It's not like the rocky soil. It's not like the thorny soil. It is soft and lonely. It accepts the word of God. It it hears the word and lets it plant deep. And, And this ground is kept holy with no thorns in sight. And the result is fruit. 30, 60, 100 times whatever was sown. And what determines whether or not this soil bears fruit isn't how hard the dirt worked, but how the word was welcomed in. Thank you for being a church who welcomes the Word. It takes time to to sit down and listen to the Word being preached. Who goes home and and spends time in your Bibles considering what the Word says. Who goes to Wednesday night Bible studies. Who who value the Word. You, You treasure it. You trust that the Lord is able to bear fruit in ways that we can't possibly comprehend. Not because of great feats that we do. Not because the church has this marvelous spectacle but because we believe that God is faithful and that he will continue to be. And as we welcome the word, the word works in our hearts. You see, the the master sower, our our savior Jesus, he, he doesn't just sow. He also tends his garden. He pulls our thorns. He, he cleans the, he clears out the stones. He tills the soil. He who began a good work in you, will see it to completion. And he will continue to tend to us until we bear fruit for his glory. Because the secret of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not hidden to you, 
This parable is not mystery to you. The Lord has revealed this truth to you. Right? And, and not because of your own flesh and blood, but because your Father in heaven loves you and has revealed it to you. So let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Let's pray. We pray this morning that as we uh, think about your word, that you would help us to treasure it. Help us to dedicate ourselves to it, to, to be open to welcoming it in our own lives. Um, we pray that you would give us the supernatural strength to believe and to value it and to pursue it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.